Tell us your name, please. I'm Paul Toscano. Hi, Paul. <laughs> Hello. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for coming and taking this tape. <laughs> so tell us, um, tell us about a bit about your heritage in your early years. Well, I'm Sicilian. My my um, my grandparents came from Sicily. They came through Ellis Island uh, around the turn of the the twentieth century, and um, my uh, I'm I'm actually. My parents were born in this country, so I'm second-generation Italian. I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I, uh, I did not grow up there. My parents moved from Brooklyn um, twice. The second time, they stayed in California. The first time they went to California and went back, uh, and I won't get into that, the reasons for that. But the second time they moved, it was about 1951. I was born in 45, so I was about six years old when they left the second time to stay. And they moved to California. Um, they um, settled in um, in West Covina. Eventually, they lived short, briefly in Rosemead, California, and then they settled in West Covina, where I grew up. I went to the Covina High School, which was not in West Covina, but it was uh, the school district that I was in. And um, oh, what can I say else about my background? One funny story that my brother Larry tells is that, and this was about two years ago, uh, we're taping this on uh, August the 2nd of, of uh, 2007, but about two years ago he, uh, he and his family went down to California to go to Disneyland, and they were in a, the California Adventure, and there's some kind of a genealogy booth or d exhibit there, and so he types in the name Toscano, and then they tell him that... Um, we're related to a medieval monk by the name of Toscano who was burned at the stake for opposing the Pope. And that just made me laugh so hard because I thought, well, maybe this whole thing that's happened to me in my life is genetic. <laughs> and uh, apparently was not a chaste monk because he had descendants, so that there's another aspect to this that's funny. Uh, I'm not sure it's true, but you know, how much can you trust Walt Disney? But nevertheless, that's the story. Um, I grew up in, uh, in uh, Southern California, um, went to grammar school there, and then, as I say, went to Trawick Junior High, where I was terrified of being hazed, but managed to get through that without incident, and uh, went to high school, was not a particularly great student in high school, although in the, in the last couple of years I managed to pull my grade point out, uh, average up to an A- minus or B-plus so that I could get into the California Scholarship Federation, which was really the California Sex Federation was what it should have been called, where we were famous for taking trips to the beach and hanging out at the beach. And there were 10 National Merit Scholars that graduated from my high school that year that I graduated. So they were a bright bunch of kids, uh, probably not as bright as I would like to remember, but pretty bright. And um, I don't know, my high school, I had a lot of fun in high school. I enjoyed it. Um, uh, and then it was in, in high school that I came to be introduced to Mormonism. I was a Catholic. We were not very good Catholics. We would be considered probably lapsed Catholics. My mother did not like the priests, and she did not like the rules and strictures of Catholicism. And... Um, uh, so I, uh, I how think many siblings besides your brother? I had uh, I have three younger brothers, so there were four boys. Okay, 
My dad, I should tell you something about my parents before I launch into talking more about myself. My dad was, uh, I, nobody knows where he was born. He would never tell what anything about his birth. Like he couldn't get him to give me his birth certificate. More recently, I think he might have been born in, uh, in Tunisia, in, in Tunis, because before my, my paternal grandparents came to this country, um, they, they migrated, they moved from Sicily, southern Sicily, across the little channel there to Tunis, which is, you know, the, the location of ancient Carthage. And uh, they married there, actually. And I know this because I actually did work to get their marriage records from that city, and, um, which took some doing. And also I got the birth records of my father's older brothers and sisters who were born there. Um, his birth record is not there, and it wasn't in this country. Uh, I thought for a while he might have been born, born on the ship, but a strange thing happened just before my father died in 1997. He admitted to my brother Joe, my youngest brother, um, who never told this to me until after my father was dead, so I could never question him about it. But uh, uh, my father admitted that he was a twin. Well, this was all very shocking to us, and uh, there was no record of a twin in this country. But a year to the almost to the day, uh, a year to the day before he claimed to be born, he claimed to be born on August fifteenth, nineteen fifteen. But on August in August of nineteen fourteen, a twin was born, and um, or not a twin, a, 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 a baby was born to my grandparents, and. Um, he might have been the twin of that baby, which would explain some things because it would show him to have been born in Tunis and then he would have, maybe maybe he was sick and they didn't report him because they came over on the last boat out of the Mediterranean before World War I began. Mm. And um, it may have been that they were terrified of being turned back and maybe they didn't report him. And so, I, you know, it's hard to put this together because that generation was very closed mouth about everything. You had to pry it out of them. And my dad would never really talk about that. He was a veteran in World War II. He never talked about that, except that I did know uh, that he was a spy. He w worked for the, uh, what was it, the OSS, the, the uh, antecedent to the CIA. And he went over there in the, like in 41 or 42 and spent maybe 18 months, two years, then was, came back and then was drafted because they had no record of his service. And it took the highest officer over the OSS who had the record of who had served there to get him out of being drafted again. And I know he was wounded because he bore the wounds on his body. And he lost a couple of friends, which I think damaged him somewhat. He was somewhat of a distant father, not, not so much distant as just kind of involved with his own worries. My mom was... What was uh, his profession? His profession, well, he... he um, started off as a kind of an electronic technician. He went to kind of a vocational school in, after he got back from the war. And then he, when he moved to California, he opened up a television repair shop in, in, a, in, in the most unlikely place, San Marino, California, where you know people could buy new televisions before they'd pay a repairman. They were so rich there. So he didn't do well there. That went under. And then he got into, he went back to school and and took more courses, and then wound up working, of all places, at um, Jet Propulsion Laboratories. And he was on the team that sent up the first Voyager. He was, a, he was a quality control engineer who 
would travel around and make sure that the various parts that were being produced by contractors with the government were up to snuff, and he was an inspector, and he did that for years and kind of slowly made his way up the chain there. My mom went to the eighth grade and stopped. She was born in Brooklyn. My dad was born in Detroit, or no, Reading, Pennsylvania, but lived in, in Detroit, Michigan. There's no record of where he was really born, but he claimed to have been born in Reading, Pennsylvania. And um, my, uh, or maybe it's pronounced Redding. I can't remember how they pronounce it there. Forgive me for those who know. And uh, my mom was born in Brooklyn, New York, and she, um, she went to the eighth grade, and after that she, she had to go to work. She went with my grandmother to work in the sweatshops there where they made women's coats and sewed pockets on women's coats, and it was very grueling work, and they didn't get paid very much. And um, they lived in a tenement on Meserol Street in Brooklyn in the Williamsburg area, near the Williamsburg Bridge. And um, I remember very well growing up there. My grandfather was my primary caregiver when I was growing up. They tried to put me in a daycare, but I cried too much, so they wouldn't, I didn't like it. I felt like I was being put in prison. They had naps. You know, who would have thought? I didn't want to take naps and have these horrible cookies. So I, I can remember protesting strenuously about that. And so they let me out. And um, my grandfather took care of me. There's an old story uh, where my, growing up, my, um, my mom would make this bowl of uh, mush for me in the morning so that I would eat it. But I, by the time she left and I got around to it, it was cold and I wouldn't eat it. And so my grandfather would whip up this uh, spaghetti with breadcrumbs and butter and garlic and a little glass of wine for lunch, and, and I was supposed to eat this mush, and he just couldn't force me to do it, and I didn't, have, I didn't want to eat it, so I'd eat with him. My mom would get home from work about 6 o'clock, and she'd see I hadn't eaten it, eaten it and she'd get very upset. And, uh, and as time, <laughs> a, few, a few days of this, or I don't know how long it lasted, she finally was, she reached the limit, and she said, if you don't eat this, Polly, you're going to wear it. And I, I couldn't understand what she was talking How do you wear cereal? I thought she must have misspoken. I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> so I didn't eat it again, and she came home, and Polly, she says, and I come bounding in, you know, not suspecting anything. She had the bowl cupped in her hand, and she put it over my head. And I, 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 I didn't, I just looked at it. Somebody has taken my mother away and replaced her with this person. <laughs> so I started to cry. My grandfather bolts into the room and scolds his youngest daughter for this breach of parental duty and affection, and she kind of collapsed. And But we tell that story. That, we, that was the story that we told. Yeah, but she, you know, I had a very wonderful childhood. My grandparents, my parents loved me dearly, and I never lacked affection. And um, it was very hard to leave that environment when they moved to California. I was six. I can remember very well the day that I last saw my grandfather, and um, that was kind of heartbreaking. And we, we, moved, we drove. It took 10 days to drive across the country in those days. And we were uh, stopping at little motels, and I guess we actually took Route 66 because we took the southern route and, um, for part of the way and wound up in California in 1951, and that's how we migrated. Uh, I, my, I was never close to my father's side, still don't know much about them, uh, very close to my mother's side, but they're all gone now. My mother's, uh, my mother's dead, my father's dead too uh, now, but my... Um, her siblings are all dead. I have some cousins that still live in New York that I occasionally contact. I know 
we are affectionate, but not very close. We grew in the, I grew up in the West, and they're Eastern, and I'm kind of a Western, West Coast guy. And uh, in 1963, moved to Utah to go to BYU, and have lived in Utah ever since. So, that, a little bit about my background, and um, I guess I should say that it was in high school uh, that uh, I encountered the Mormons. Uh, the fellow that um, uh, converted me was named Blaine, uh, Blaine Lee, and he was a um, uh, he was in the same year I was, and uh, he was a lot different from me. I was more nerdy, and he was on the cross country team, and we we kind of met up. He was very and and I met and Randy Pico, his uh, another. I, I still uh, contact Randy from time to time. And I was about uh, 16 years old. It was in 1961. And uh, he just asked me if I was interested in Mormonism, would I like to know more? Those were the golden questions that uh, were asked back then. Every member a missionary. And, and uh, I said, no, I'm not interested. <laughs> I have my own religion. But... He persisted, and, you know, I wanted to be courteous, and I listened. And after a while, I became intrigued with Mormon doctrine. Now, a lot of people, when they join Mormonism, are, are attracted to the family aspects of it. I had plenty of family aspects. I wasn't attracted to that particularly. I was interested more in the teachings. Um, and I secretly took the missionary lessons without my parents knowing it, which was stupid on my part, but I did it because I, I didn't want to upset them because I didn't think anything was going to come of it. But after a while, I came to, you know, I, I had a... I'm not sure what converted me. I don't remember any particular, you know, major spiritual event. I just came to the conclusion that this doctrine was true. Um, I, I, I remember writing a story in a book called No More Strangers by Hartman and Connie Rector. It was like in one of the volumes of that series, my story appears. It was a story that I had written um, for them. And in, in it, I, I remember that, and, and the incident is true, I remember looking at the, the, this book called The Mormons or The Mormon Story. And in there, there was a picture of the Twelve Apostles. Uh, the modern Twelve Apostles, and it had LeGrand Richards and Harold B. Lee, and it was a picture taken around, I would imagine, 1960, 1959. And uh, I remember that LeGrand Richards was wearing penny loafers and possibly had white socks. <laughs> and I looked at their faces and I thought, I, I, I can believe these guys are the Twelve Apostles. <laughs> and for some reason I kind of felt like they were. I never thought that in years later I would become their nemesis but I knew that there was some kind of connection there. So I wanted to join the church, and finally when I told my mom that I wanted to join Mormonism, I was shocked at her violent reaction. I, I was simply not prepared for her um, emotional and violent reaction, which, you know, frankly, I chalked up at the time to menopause. I, I didn't know what to think. Because it was completely beyond anything that my it was as strange a reaction as when she dumped the you know the mush over my head years earlier. I mean it was not characteristic of her, uh, certainly 
unexpected from my perspective. I did not think she cared that much about religion. But I did not understand that for her, religion and culture were intertwined in a way that she foresaw that this would be a breach with the family that would never be healed, that she would see me going off into a realm that she would not want to follow. And I could not understand that. I could not understand her feelings. And so I was adamant. You know, the more she objected, the more I dug my heels in. And I, and this was the very first time in my whole life that I expressed any kind of, uh, how can I put it, any kind of um, objection to my parents, any kind of host, uh, disagreement with my parents. Because until then, I was kind of, you know, I would complain when she asked me to paint the eaves in August, you know, because I didn't want to be out there sweating and painting the eaves of the house. But I would not really oppose it. I'd just go do it. And um, I was very close to my mom, closer to her than to my dad. Uh, I think all my brothers felt closer to my mom than my dad. My dad was a little distant from us. But, um, in fact, to be perfectly honest with you, my dad was a pain in the patoot. He, as time went on, he became more and more difficult. He had moments of violent, uh, you, know, he would, you know, he would hit us. Uh, he knocked my brother's tooth out in one violent episode. And, um, and the reason why I say, I say this is for something that I'll tell you later, but, but um, this is not to disparage him. I, I, I had affection for my father. It's just that he, was, he could be dangerous because he would have these explosive fits of temper. And, um, and he was not, he wouldn't sit down with you and tell you stuff, and we didn't play ball or go fishing. He was just distant from us. And, uh, but he worked hard, and he was always worried about money. But he, he would gamble. He had a gambling habit that my mother detested, and it would create this um, constant friction between them, which grew as time went on. To the, to the point when I was in high school, I just didn't like to be at home because they would bicker so much. The bickering was just awful. And my father could be extremely insulting and, and very cruel to my mom. And I just, you know, there, there was nothing much that I could do. At one point, I, I thought she would leave him, but she, she, women didn't, at that time, didn't have much they could do if they left their husband. They, where would the income come from? And what about us kids? And so it was not really possible for her. So I think she felt trapped. Eventually, uh, oddly enough, uh, I don't know how to tell this chronologically, but I can jump around, I guess. Eventually, when uh, they, they moved to Utah, uh, all my brothers joined Mormonism at one or another point in their lives over a long period of time. Um, I think my, my second brother, Larry, joined Mormonism in the 70s, and my brothers, Tony and Joe, joined in the 80s. They are all... The, Joe reverted back to Catholicism. My brother, Larry, is... a kind of like me, where he's believing of some things but not of others. And I don't, uh, I can't really speak for my brother Tony. Uh, he's, I think he's in a conservative Mormon family, but I'm not, I don't know what his beliefs are at this point. But um, they all joined, and my parents came here. They never joined the church, but um, they had, um, they, they, they moved to Orem. <laughs> When we were living in Orem, they lived nearby, and um, that was in the late 70s and early 80s. So it was kind of interesting that eventually they, they 
followed us to the extent that they were able to um, out here into the Rocky Mountains. Um, I don't know. There's so many things that I've been writing my autobiography, so I have a lot of stories that I've thought about, and I don't know. I'm having trouble no, filtering okay. them out. So your baptism, you got baptized at what age? I was, um, I was uh, just about going to turn 18. I was 17. It was on March 15th of 1963. So probably a senior in high school? I was a senior in high school. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then first year of college, where was that? Well, that year, 1963, in September of 1963. That's when Kennedy was shot, right? In, yeah, it was when Kennedy was shot. I was in Howard Hatch's French class. I was in a French class and a freshman in college when Kennedy was shot. And um, but in September of 1963, I I went I went up to BYU, and um, we um, um, it was a rainy day. Nobody was there. We were there about four or five days before school actually began, so the kids hadn't started coming to the campus. And that, those were the days of BYU. I mean, it was it was. Uh, I mean, we wore beanies. We wore freshman beanies. During orientation week, we all shook Ernest Wilkinson's hand as president of the university, and he had some grip, and he liked to crush the bones in the hands of the freshman boys. So he shook his hand. Oh yes, I I had a number of encounters with Ernest L. Wilkinson. He's an interesting man, short, kind of grumpy. He chewed his tongue a lot. I've found myself chewing my tongue now, and I realize I. It happens to older guys as they get nervous and worried about things. They start chewing their tongues. But anyway, yeah, I got to BYU and uh, that, that's pretty. That's pretty immersive to go from a new convert to the BYU experience. Was it overwhelming? Super conservative? Was it? Oh, back then BYU wasn't conservative. It, it didn't strike me as being conservative. I mean, there were because no, you were conservative. No, because they they didn't have dress standards that I can recall. People could have beards if they wanted to. Uh, it just the emphasis wasn't on uh, rigidity, the rigidity of behavior. I, I never noticed it. I mean, I, I remember in my freshman year, I think it was my freshman year, could have been my sophomore year, that there was a big debate between Melvin Cook and the geology department and the religion department over the age of the earth, and. Students and faculty were there, and they were saying the nastiest things to each other, and it was just a complete open debate. Um, I, 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 I saw that uh, happen on a number of occasions where there were just there was just a lot of openness. I never felt the cons- it wasn't conservative like it is now. It wasn't correlated. The correlation program hadn't come into effect, and so you know. Th- the MIA had its own budget. The Relief Society had its own budget. You know, Bell Spafford was still president with lifetime tenure over the Relief Society. I, I think it was just a more loose, you know, the church was a loose confederation of sometimes warring agencies that, that it may, gave, gave a sense of freedom and openness that I don't think is there anymore. So, no, I never felt that it was that way. So what, what was it like socially? What were religion classes like? And what was it like academically for you? Well, I don't know how to express this. I um, 
uh, I think academically, um, I didn't do well in my first three years. I, I don't know why. I got there. I, I wasn't homesick. Um, I wasn't, I was just a little bit lost. Uh, I felt I would go to class. I'm not always. My attendance wasn't very good sometimes. Um, I had to work. I think that was the main reason. I, I worked as um, the, we didn't have any money. Uh, my parents sent me some money. I lived on forty dollars a month. Hmm. That was all that I had. We spent twenty dollars of it for rent. That's all we had. Twenty dollars of rent, and the other twenty dollars went for food, which was five dollars a week for food, and we lived. Uh, somehow we we had a little extra money. We had uh, had to have enough because we had a telephone, so we had to pay the telephone bill, and the utilities were included. And um, I lived on University Avenue. I lived at 1009 North University Avenue, right across from Hawes Field, about two uh, uh, two houses or three houses south from Provo High. And every morning, and I get up to and go up that hill uh, behind the field house up to campus, and. Um, I worked, uh, I made a little extra money uh, working, uh, I think I didn't work my freshman year because I had a scholarship for that year, but I didn't have a full scholarship, only for the freshman year. And so the second year, my sophomore year, I had to work as a um, uh, janitor, and I would get up at 3.30 in the morning and get to work at 4 and finish at 7, so we did three to f 4 to 7. Were you in? We got a dollar an hour. We used to. Our motto was "Make a million dollars, work a million hours," and, uh, and that and that kind of that schedule just kind of made it, me tired all the time. So I had a hard time uh, in the early morning classes and stuff. So did, I think that was the. Problem. Did you have as peers anyone who would be recognizable today by name? You know, any people that I knew. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I met Lavina Anderson in the in my uh, between my. Freshman and sophomore year, um, she she was in a summer ward with us, and I met her and her sister. Uh, Sally Hale, who recently died, who was the head of the Hale Theater, that theater family, she was in that ward. She was dating Happy Clough, was his name. He went back down to California. I don't know whatever happened to him. Um, I um, uh, there were various people that I guess I. Um, Hiram Andrus was our bishop, was my bishop in the, in the years of the, um, let's see, it would be my sophomore and junior year. This was like in 64, 5, 65, 6. Um, so I knew Hiram Andrus. Who's that? Uh, Hiram Andrus was a very popular religion teacher at the time, and he wrote some very influential books uh, that I think influenced a lot of us, and nobody ever talks much about Hiram anymore. Uh, he eventually got booted out of the religion department by Bruce McConkie, and they took. He became a researcher in the in the Harold B. Lee Library for a while, and then after that, he he even left there. They gave him an early retirement, and this was like in the in the eighties. Uh, he was influential on you then. He was influential on a lot of us. What I were mean, some of his teachings or? Oh, he taught. He was the one who would teach the Joseph Smith theories, uh, I mean theology classes. He taught, Joseph, he wrote Joseph Smith and World Government. He wrote Joseph Smith, uh, uh, They Knew the Prophet. He wrote a book called um, 
uh, Joseph Smith, The Man and the Seer. He wrote the three-volume work, uh, God, Man, and the Universe, Principles of Perfection, those things. And did he have a slant? Did he have you a slam? Was he liberal? Was he well? He was extremely know, was he conservative. Was he, he accurate? Was, was he? Did he embellish? Was it faithful history? Was it accurate? You know. Well, he was accurate to the extent that you could be. He was faithful. He was conservative. I think that what he was doing was digging up stuff from the early uh, church history in the Joseph Smith period, which really was kind of the information was new to us then. I mean. Uh, in 1966, I remember him going to the uh, church uh, uh, historian's office and opening crates of uh, documents that had not been opened since the trek from Nauvoo. That, that he was seeing stuff that hadn't been looked at for 100 years hmm. or 120. And they would let him. Yeah, they would let him. And uh, he was writing stuff that, about Joseph Smith and his teachings and his theology that was really quite phenomenal. Uh, even to this day, if people read those books, I mean, he's not a concise writer. He's not the greatest writer, but he was a great researcher and had a very clear picture of the teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Now, who who did he influence? Mike Quinn, Andy Ehat, Lyndon Cook, myself, Margaret. Uh, I don't know about Levina, but I know that he influenced a lot of people. He he was a uh, he was a, f a very influential person that I think very mo most people don't mention anymore. Maybe they've forgotten, or maybe maybe they just don't want to get because he isn't. Um, uh, I don't think he got the scholarly credit that he deserved. Were you aware of Lowell Benyon or T. Edgar Lyon at this point? I knew who. I don't know who. I didn't know T. Edgar Lyon, but I did know Lowell Benyon. I mean, I knew of him. I never met him. And was he able to have any influence on BYU students at that time? I didn't think Lowell Binion did on BYU students because he was up more at the U, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that, I mean, people knew about Lowell Binion, but I think it was a University of Utah phenomenon. And what about Sterling McMurrin, same thing? Sterling McMurrin was considered um, by the religion faculty at BYU to be a liberal. And I think he may have had debate. no, he didn't have debates. Um, I think J.D. Williams at the University of Utah had a debate once with Hiram back in the 60s. I, I came to know J.D. Williams. He was, um, he, uh, he organized a, um, after, uh, around the time of our excommunications, he, he organized a big tribute to the people who were excommunicated that was held at the University of Utah. And and I and he was actually he lived in the same condo park that Margaret and I lived in during that period, which was in Park Place, uh, which is um, yeah, in Salt Lake, you know, that's a Cottonwood area. And and uh, and uh, so I got to know some of these people later. But at the time when I was at BYU, you know, um, I'd never M Margaret was deeply influenced by, um, or she took a lot of classes from and was influenced by Hugh Nibley. I, I never was. Uh, I never took classes from Nibley. I'd met him and I'd heard him speak at lectures and things, but I never took classes from him. I was there at his retirement, the um, thing that they did for him in 1975, but but I never took classes from him. So I didn't know what I was going to do. 